Welcome to The Mentor List. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference. What is precious, what's really important and then putting some boundaries there. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Welcome to The Mentor List. This is our specialist mini-series called Diversity Matters Leaders in Conversation. With your mini-series host, Richard Elstone, partner at Folly Durham, prior guests on the show, and well-known expert and coach in getting execs ready for making a move. I hope you enjoy this episode of Diversity Matters Leaders in Conversation here on The Mentor List. Welcome to this episode of Diversity Matters leaders in conversation and today I've got with me uh, Michelle Redfern who's the founder of Advancing Women, an enterprise providing research and advisory services on equality, inclusion and gender diversity. She's also the founder of Social Enterprise and Professional Women's Network, Women Who Get It and the co-founder of Social Enterprise CDW, Culturally Diverse Workforce. Michelle is determined to contribute to achieving global gender diversity in her lifetime, especially through her network in uh, through her work in sport. She is the proud recipient of the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence Award and was the finalist in the Vic Health EWN Community Award for her significant contribution to the AFL. She is the panel judge for the Vic Sport Awards and has been a long-term Telstra Business Women's Award judge. She is a graduate of the ARCD, holds an executive MBA and various accreditations in organisational diversity and coaching. And she is a self-confessed talker, <laughs> says that she can talk underwater. And I'm delighted to have her here as my guest. Welcome. Thank you, Richard. I'm delighted to be here. And you're absolutely right. As my dad would say, I could talk underwater with a mouthful of marbles. <laughs> well, good. So it should be a very entertaining conversation today. Yes, I'm a bit worried about your time limit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very good. So uh, what I'm keen to do today is to sort of find out about all about you and about what things um, you're really interested in getting across. So let's go all the way back. And can you tell me all about your childhood and your siblings and where you were born? You were sand grope grope or something, I am indeed, yeah. yes. The, uh, before the fence went up, I escaped. But... Um, <laughs> I was born in Perth and uh, then very shortly or very, very early on in my life, my dad, who worked for then the PMG, which became Telecom, then Telstra, uh, moved to Geraldton, which is about 400 kilometres north of Perth. So I grew up in regional Western Australia. Um, Dad is Graham. Mum is Veronica, and uh, despite the fact as a, as a young person I thought that my parents were completely ordinary and, you know, annoying like most parents are, I, I now look back and, and know that I was very, very fortunate through an accident of birth to be born to two very progressive, forward-thinking people who um, mum and dad were both of the era where kids in, you know, not affluent circumstances had to leave school. So both of them had to leave school at 14. They were um, asked by their parents and to go into the workforce to contribute to the family. So mum and dad were very, very determined self-starters and, and determined that my sisters and I, I have two younger sisters, Helen and Nicole, that we would have a life that was different from theirs. And they exposed us to all sorts of different thinking and societal um, circumstances and 
I think if I think about our childhood, mum and dad were always very involved in community and sport, but particularly service was a very strong ethic for them. So dad and and mum were in Lions, always volunteering, etc. So our, our sense of ethic and giving to the community and being in service of the community was very, very prevalent through childhood. And of course, I only realised that in hindsight. So I always say to people, if you've got young people or teenagers in your home and you think they're not listening or you're not having an impact, you will. You are. <laughs> It'll just take a few years to uh, to surface. But yeah, so mum and dad were really progressive. And my primary schooling years, I now know were such a formative part of, of who I am now and why I've got such a strong sense of fair go and justice mm-hmm. and social justice. My primary school, Beachlands Primary School, was had a very high number of Aboriginal kids um, going to it and my sisters and I grew up with Aboriginal kids, played sport, had friendships, etc., which, of course, was completely and utterly ordinary to us. It wasn't until a little bit later in life and a couple of incidences and what have you that I realised that that, you know, those were very, very formative years. And mum and dad made very deliberate choices about the kind of environments that we would be in and the types of people that we would be. So, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that I grew up in what on the outside was a very standard mum and dad. You know, dad went to work for the public service. Mum was a stay-at-home mum, as many mums were in the 1970s. Three girls, you know, primary school, etc. So I, um, I was very, very conscious that you know we we didn't have an ordinary life, even though I thought it was very ordinary at the time. They they were exposing us to these these great circumstances, which, as I said, have, have shaped who I am now. So, and life was what was life like in not the nineteen seventies, Geraldton? It would have been. Um very different to what it is now, I imagine. Yeah, and look, I haven't been back to Geraldton for a very long time. I've still got a sister that lives there. But, um, you know, life was, you know, there was there was a lot of sport. It was very traditional. You know, it was a very, very traditional town, uh, about fifteen to 18,000 people, so a big town, not a tiny little town. Mm. Uh, one of the things that frustrated me, particularly as I got into my teenage years, was it was a little town. I was ready for the big smoke <laughs> very, very, very early in life. But, um, so you I, went to Perth, did you? Yeah, I did. I escaped as soon as I could. Um, I, I used to get frustrated that everyone knew everyone else's business and I, I, I craved anonymity. I was a bit naughty too, so anonymity was something that a naughty teenager does crave and it's a bit hard when your dad's the district telephone manager and the president of Lions and he knows half the policemen in town and they give you a clip under the ear every now and then when they catch you at the pub and you shouldn't be there and things like, blast, I've been caught again. So, you know, things would wind their way back to mum and dad. So you didn't get away with an awful lot. But it was very, you know, despite the fact that mum and dad were exposing us to some really interesting social environments, it was very traditional and it was very... There was segregation and there was racism mm. and no doubt many of the other social justice issues that we talk a little bit more about today, mm. they were definitely there. So uh, apart from, you know, exposing you to a highly unusual background, you know, Aboriginal kids uh, at primary school, etc. How else did they shape who you are today? You said that they were progressive, but can you? Is there something that you can sort of point to? Yeah. So there, there were two. There's two key things that stand out in my mind. I always remember, Mum and Dad wanted us. They, they were so very overt about us having a good life and but being cultured and and being educated and 
So they would do things like make sure that we ate different food. We would have a special dinner party every second Thursday, which I now realise was payday, and mum did cooking classes. She was always trying to better herself and better us. So mum did cooking classes to expose us to different types of foods. They taught us how to eat properly, you know, use cutlery properly, um, you know, little things like that. They, they enrolled us in ballroom dancing, which none of our friends did, and we thought it was completely daggy. And, and irritating and boring and, you know, what have you. But, you know, the reality was oh, I could probably still trot out a foxtrot if I had to. But um, <laughs> um, so that they were very determined to better us, but they were very involved politically as well. They were members of the ALP mm. and they taught us to argue and debate. Mm. They taught us to have opinions. In fact, they taught us not to be bigots because they said you can have an opinion but without being able to back it up, you're a bigot. So have an opinion and be able to back it up with facts and data mm-hmm. and, and argument. And I did debating uh, in, in high school, which I also now has served, know has served me very, very well. And, you know, those are the kinds of things that my peers weren't necessarily being exposed to by their parents. I got to meet Gough Whitlam when I was a, a young person, which was – it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, oh. I, I, one of the first people I met in 1988 was Gough Whitlam when he yeah. came to Expo with Margaret. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, I mean, I'm a big bloke. I mean, he's, he's a big and he's, man. And yeah. Margaret was taller than me as well, yeah. I reckon. Yeah. She was uh, about six foot five, I reckon. Well, I, I remember lining up with my dad, and I would have been, gee, 74 was the dismissal. So it was around that time. So I was really quite little, probably seven or eight. And I can remember lining up with Dad and I was inordinately excited. And it was like lining up for, you know, communion at Mass or the Pope to see the Pope. There was this great long receiving line. And as we got closer, I had my little autograph book with me. And he just leaned down and said, good morning, young comrade. And I just shook his hand and went, oh, my life is complete, you know, as an eight-year-old. And, and, you know, but those are the things. So those kind, I talk about those things now and, and particularly with my partner who, because we're the same age and she had, we had almost exactly the same, you know, societal position, upbringing, mums and dads and things like that. Our experiences were so different. Mm. Yeah, mum and dad were very, very good at bettering us and, and making mm. us think about our place in the world, what our contribution was going to be and how we were going to be in service, but really intellectually always challenging us to be better, think better, have an opinion on what was happening in the world. So I was an avid newspaper reader from from very young and very, very interested in having a world view. Mm. I didn't realise that's what it was at the time, of course. No, that's right. So back in the school days or in Geraldton or later in Perth, was there an early mentor that helped shape who you are today? Absolutely. There was a woman who was my softball coach and Pauline Gibb, Miss Gibb, she was one of the teachers at school. She came... She came into school and often we would get the school teachers from from Perth. They'd have to do their country service as soon as they came out of teachers college. So we'd get these great, enthusiastic young teachers. Of course, they they looked really old to us because we were kids. But um, Pauline was remarkable. So she came into our school. I think she was teaching grade three or four. I can't recall. But she decided to form this softball team for our school and it became – I just latched onto her. She was dynamic. She was fun. She treated the kids, all of us. And as, as it, oh, I've got another story about that. But uh, as it turned out, she was she was really inclusive, and she knew that this softball team was a way of giving a whole lot of us not just access to you know a sport and teamwork, and obviously the leadership that goes with teamwork. 
but it was a way of getting our little primary school, which was a very low socioeconomic area, was one of the poor schools, didn't do well. She knew that she could harness some things that we were really good at and, and give us an opportunity to really shine. And she, for me personally, she treated me like she was probably the per- first person who really called out leadership for me. She put me into a leadership position. She asked me to help her coach. And it was probably my first taste of, of leadership and, and and being at the front and centre. But what's interesting about that little softball team, my sister Helen sent me a photo of our softball team that she found in you know one of her archives last year. And I looked at it and I went, gee whiz, I just thought about our softball team all these years. We had this fabulous team that did really well and was fun. And I looked and there's my sister and I and our friend Joylene and we are the only, we're the three white girls in the team. The rest were Aboriginal. Now, if someone had said to me, your softball team, I wouldn't have even considered, wow, it was a very Aboriginal team and there were three little white girls in this team. So it just goes to show how blind to colour kids are and the kind of really egalitarian environment that my parents and people Mm. like Pauline had come into. But Pauline is absolutely one of my very first non-parental, non-auntie or or grandpa or anything like that, non-relationship or, you know, being related to someone mentors. She had a very formative effect on my life. Oh, good. Oh, good. She sounds fabulous. Yeah. I think we could all do with a Pauline in our our lives. Absolutely. Yep. So give us a sort of snapshot of your career, and particularly around the leadership areas. Uh, did you go to university, et no, cetera? No, 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 much to my – so now that you know about my parents, you'll know that they were absolutely devastated when I very determinedly uh, at the age of 15 said, I'm not going back to school next year. I had done work experience as a 15-year-old in year 10, what we now know as year 10, and the firm that I worked for, a little local business, uh, a tyre firm, you know, did wheel alignments and fitted tyres and things like that. I did work experience for a week there, loved it. Uh, they offered me a part-time job on Saturday morning, so I did that. And, and I was always – I had worked. I'd always done babysitting, working at the local local shop. For me, money equated to choice and independence. I knew that, you know, intrinsically very young. So I – they offered me the part-time job and then – at the end of, I was coming up to the end of year 10 and they grabbed me one morning and said, look, Debbie, the office girl who was already there, is leaving and going back to Perth. How about you come and work for us? I went, you beauty, no worries. Because I thought, excellent, I can get a job, I've got freedom, I've got money and I can save up for a car and then I can move to Perth. Excellent. That was all my thought process was. (laughs) So I went home and announced this to mum and dad and, of course, they said under no circumstances because... And, you know, their own history, having to leave school at 14. And they had great aspirations for my sisters and I. And we were going to go to university, etc. I've been talking about getting into computer programming. I was bright. I was no Rhodes Scholar, but I was bright. And anyway, long story short, I got my own way. And my dad being a good, uh, well, a good union man, went and negotiated my wages and said, well, if you're going to go and work, you're going to get paid fairly. And uh, went and negotiated my wages and uh, and off I went. So I left school at 15. I worked there for, for three or four years, then moved to Perth, got into banking for the first time. And Really, from a, a leadership position, I came into leading roles when I was very young. I was I was a branch supervisor for a, at one of the local banks in Perth when I was I was about twenty one or twenty two. Yeah, I was twenty one actually, and of course thought I was fabulous. I look back now, think goodness gracious. Anyway, you know the arrogance of youth. 
Um, so, and my career really became very non-linear after that. I did some, I was married very young, had children very young and spent some time working part-time and things like that. But I followed dad into, into telecom because I got sick of banking. It was very low, you know, very bad pay, dreadful conditions. And frankly, for someone who was driven and ambitious like I was, mm. I could see I was running up against a whole bunch of barriers that went, yeah, I'm not going to progress here. So went to uh, work for telecom for dad, thought I'll do this for a couple of years, save up some money and I might go back to school and get my get my year 12 and, and go to university. Well, 15 years later, I had uh, finished a very, uh, what was actually a very illustrious career at Telstra. And I often say I grew up personally and professionally at Telstra. It was the most remarkable 15 years I had extraordinary leadership. I had extraordinary experiences, including being moved from Perth to Melbourne with Telstra. I got to lead some very, very big teams, some very complex teams. But ultimately, I had a lot of people who who spotted my potential and really let me go for it. And, you know, it's not to say, you know, not all roles are fabulous and, and you know, rosy and what have you, but I had a really great time there. And then I came up I literally thought, shivers, I've been here 15 years. How, how did that happen? And I had been on talent programs and being mentored by some great people in the organisation. I thought, I wonder if I'm really as good as everyone keeps telling me that I am. And I knew I'd reached a point. I was sort of in upper middle management at that time in Telstra. And I thought, for me to get to the next level, I probably need to go out of Telstra and then come back in at a more senior level. I was very, very strong in my aspirations I thought, right, well, off I go. I'm going to cast myself out into the wild, wide blue world and see if I really am as good as people think I am. So I resigned, which, of course, people thought I was bonkers because in those days you got a redundancy and took off. So I resigned and then and went and worked in the, the contact centre industry, in the outsourced contact centre industry, under another remarkable leader called Denise Pitt, who's now the CEO of um, SWIT or OES, uh, Swinburne Online, the joint venture between Swinburne and Seek. And Denise was my CEO, my mentor, is still my mentor, my friend, and one of the most remarkable women that I've I've worked for. So I had a marvellous four years working with her, then had a couple of years in an interesting role in third-party logistics. Mm -hmm. My my now wife and I were working together in a small company, and people said, why did you go and do that? I said, because it looked interesting. I'd never worked in freight and logistics and warehousing. They had a need that I could fill around maturing their, their, particularly their sales and client mm-hmm. management area and contract management, which I was an expert at. And then I went back into outsourcing and worked for Serco, which is a global business process outsourcing, probably, and that was one of the best jobs I've ever had, despite some, you know, there were some challenges about working in a very big, monstrous global company. But, uh, you know, I ran, I was general manager of the Australian operations for BPO and probably had the one of the best teams um, I've ever had. I had real variety in my work, had lots of operational stuff, lots of contract and, and you know, running big P&Ls, but lots of client management stuff. And I really love relationship management. Mm-hmm. I, love, I love negotiation to win-win. I really love getting great outcomes. And I think if I think about it, going back to my, my parents, that service ethic, being in service of others, that comes through very strongly in the way that I manage my relationships even mm-hmm. now with my clients, I'm in service of them. So that was great. Then went over into banking again. I, the NAB called. They had some jobs that they said, oh, we'd like you to come and 
help us run our call centres and then then there was let's can you come and run the ATMs division and I did that and after a couple of years there I went you know and I was also doing my MBA at the time I I cottoned on that there's some stuff I like doing that's part of my job mm-hmm. and that was around you know obviously leadership but certainly around how do I create really inclusive workplaces how do I really focus on diversity mm. inclusion and solving business problems through diversity and inclusion and I was doing more and more work and advocacy and activism in that space and then had a couple of epiphanies and I went ah this is what I'm meant to do when I grow up so I jumped out and started my own business and that's kind of the career in in a snapshot three or four or five minutes yes yeah fantastic that's really really good so thinking back then if you if you could sort of have a chat to your 21 year old Michelle, the one back in the bank, mm. what would you say to her now? What advice would you give her? I've just written a letter to myself, my 20 or 21-year-old self. There's a woman writing a book and she contacted me and said, I'm doing a whole bunch of letter, uh, women, you know, prominent women and you know, influential women get letters to their 21-year-old self. So I did have to do that reflective exercise. And my prevailing thoughts around who I was when I was sort of that 18 to 21 year bracket was I was desperately trying to be normal and fitting in. And I always knew that I was slightly odd, (laughs) my own words. Um, I think unique is probably a better word, but I, I felt slightly odd. My words to myself would be to slow down and listen more to my what's really what's really going on inside me and my thought processes. I was so desperate to fit in, so desperate to conform, so desperate to be liked that I didn't exhibit the courage that I now exhibit around the issues that matter to me. I really was so, so fixated on being part of the group that I I really did lose, I think, a bit of myself and... I would tell myself to be far more courageous. I would tell myself to listen more closely to what really matters to me because it would help inform some choices that perhaps you can't go back. You know, Richard, you Mm. can't. I don't believe in having regrets because I think everyone does, in the most case, the best. They're trying to do the best that they can can do at the time within the circumstances. However, if I had the magic time turner like Hermione from Harry Potter and I could go back, I would ask myself to be much more courageous and listen to my inner voice that tells me what's really important to me, what's, you know, those values that my parents instilled in me and stop trying to fit in quite so much because I think I did lose a bit of myself for a few years there. Very wise words, very wise words. We talked a little bit before about some diversity issues or moments in that have happened to you mm. you've got one positive story and yep. you've got one not so positive story yeah. can you talk to everybody about that and what you've learned from that sure so in terms of, of, of diversity my my positive story is that I have been the recipient of gender-based appointments one executive role and two board roles and so they are, are positive stories, albeit I've had to navigate some feedback and some some territory around, particularly the executive appointment. So the context, I was working at the NAB. I had been there about six months. The executive in charge of the digital and direct division came to me and said, mind you, had an all-male team, uh, a male executive team at that point, and was getting a fair bit of flack for that and you know, had been told, you need to diversify your top team. 
So he came to me and said, I'd like you to come and or go through a process to be selected to run the ATMs and self-service division. I will be appointing a woman. And so I went through the process and I was appointed. And so that was very, very good. Now, there were a couple of things going on there. Number one, people said, how do you feel about being the first woman on the team? I mean, I've been the first woman on lots of teams and the only woman on lots of teams. So this is very, very familiar territory for me. And I'm very comfortable in in the company of and working with men because that's been my whole life. Then it was, well, how do you feel that you've been appointed just because you're a woman? I said, well, that's a very interesting question. There was a criteria, there was a there was positive discrimination to address a, an imbalance in mm-hmm. the team, and I've been the recipient of that. But my gender may have got me to the selection process, but it hasn't meant that I've been selected. My credentials and my ability to lead, etc., has got me there. And by crikey, my gender's not going to keep me there because if I don't do well, I'll be under the same scrutiny mm-hmm. as every other person. So that that was really interesting territory. Two of my board roles, I've been appointed. My first two football roles, I've been appointed because I was a woman. The board specifically needed women for a couple of different reasons, to, again, to address a gender imbalance and to really harness the broader perspectives. You know, with gender, you're also going to get some different lived experience, cognitive difference, etc. Sure. So, and people said, oh, wow, okay. So those are really positive for me because they're great examples to give to other women who, who will say to me, I don't want to be appointed just because of my gender. I say, you know what, forget about it. Just get over yourself, get over that that statement and get on the bloody board or get on the executive team or whatever it may be. We've got to get you there. So use a process that is designed to address an imbalance that's not of, of your doing. So those that's positive and I use those examples obviously when I talk to people about gendered appointments and quotas and targets and things like that about how it can be a very positive experience. My not-so-positive experience was, now, the context, I'm, I'm late in my career, so it's just before I, I went out into my own my own business. So I'm, I've done a lot of work around understanding organisational design, dynamics, leadership, inclusive leadership. And I had a boss, and look, he and I weren't mates, and that happens from time to time. But I received feedback about being, and then the word he used was you are very abrasive. And so there were two things around hearing that feedback. Number one, it was a surprise. And any leader worth their salt knows that at an end of year review, there are no surprises. Mm-hmm. So that was that was faux pas number one on his part from my perspective. So I was I was shocked and disappointed and upset to be surprised by that feedback. But the second part was I said, gee, I'm going to challenge you on that because if I was a man sitting here and I'm driving a very, very strong agenda for the organisation in a very complex environment and it was tough, it was probably one of the toughest roles I've ever done, I don't think that you would be calling me abrasive. You would be saying you're hard at the ball and you get outcomes and you're, you're very assertive. And he said, no, don't play the gender card on me. I said, I am going to play it because this is the double bind. You know, women are expected to be amenable and nurturing and we have this this nurturing feminine mm-hmm. paradigm that, that women are expected to be. Mind you, that doesn't get them promoted either because they're not seen as having the drive and the ambition and the assertiveness. 
So then you display the drive, and, and I've always been driven and ambitious and and assertive, you know, and someone did say, you know, iron fist in the velvet glove. So I, I you know, and I, I use humor a lot and I, I wrap sometimes hard messages up in a bit of humor and a bit of a bit of a cuddle and things like that. So so I was really I was really shocked by it. But I walked away from that meeting feeling so hurt, so disappointed and so shocked and then quite bewildered about my own reaction to it. I thought, gee whiz, I'm a really mature woman who's experiencing what is the most textbook gender bias and I'm having and I'm struggling with him. Wow. What if I was a twenty seven what if it's twenty seven year old Michelle who didn't have the wealth of experience and life experience mm. and confidence that I have. And so it really again it was a completely negative experience, but it was a positive one because I went, aha, this is why I've got this hankering to do this thing, which of course is now what I do. Mm-hmm. This is why. So, I, again, negative, but it was a positive. It was a you learn from every experience sure. and every leader that you've got, whether they're good, bad or indifferent, you learn something from. And I learned something from that leader, including what I didn't want to be like mm. and including that I wanted to not have that kind of leadership in organisations anymore. Well, it's something to also talk about. I mean, also to think about and realise that that's, you know, he is not the only one that's like that. Uh, no. Um, and so it's something that you can talk about that probably loads of people could identify with as well. I mean, that's the, yeah. that's, that's the thing there. And I've told that story a couple of times and written about it and every time someone goes, oh, God, I'm just like that. <laughs> yes, I've had that experience. I, I know you have. <laughs> probably the same bloke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the reality is then, then I want to have the conversation with with the men and, and you know, we, we'd had a conversation this week, you and I, around we've got 80-plus percent of large organisations mm-hmm. in Australia are run by men and I want men to understand and empathise with these situations because I'm ever the optimist. I know that 99.9 recurring percent of men are good blokes who want to do the right thing. We need to give them the space to be able to do that. In moving gender from talk to action, mm. if you could wave a magic wand, mm-hmm. what would it be? You know, on diversity that is. You know, so what would it be mm-hmm. and why? It's a really good question, and these kind of questions I struggle with because I always think I think at a systems level, Richard, and but then I know that people. I had a conversation with your group of clients the other day about you know, there is no messiah coming and it is up to every single one of us so I've got two answers the first answer is that every single one of us can make a difference every single day there are give or take 15 million adult Australians and I wonder what might Australia look like if every single Australian every single adult Australian made one act of inclusive and diverse leadership once a month every month every year That's 15 million acts of inclusion, inclusive leadership every month. That's not every day, just every month. And that's about 180 million acts of inclusion. I think that could create a huge change. And what I'm talking about there is deliberate and intentional action. As an individual, that might be I'm going to have as a senior man in a powerful position, I might go and have a conversation with a woman in my organisation somewhere in the in the hierarchy to really understand what the lived experience is of women in my organisation. I might go and have a conversation with a customer 
who is a woman to say, what is it like dealing with our organisation mm. and how could we do it better? I might just be kind to someone, you know, because I think kindness and compassion is is underrated in leadership. So that's the what every single one of us could do. And I do, I challenge in pretty much every environment that I can, I do challenge people to make one act, one deliberate and intentional commitment to act inclusively. At a macro level, I'd like every powerful leader. So I'd like every CEO of every organisation in Australia, and particularly in sport, which is a passion of mine, to get together and say, how might we together solve the problem of diversity? Because we all understand the power of diversity for a prosperous organisation, a prosperous country. We talk about statistics with diversity about, you know, if we have XYZ more women in leadership, it'll contribute to GDP. We've got to start breaking that down to say it makes sense when you have women, greater participation, female participation in the workforce, when they start to earn more and become more financially mobile, so they, they, they earn more, they will spend more. When you spend more, consumption goes up. The very you know, the C, the very first part of the of GDP goes up. What happens when consumption goes up? Organisations start to expand. Oh, hang on, there's more jobs more leadership. When organisations start to expand, they then start to invest in infrastructure, etc. So I'd like that to be really front of mind Mm -hmm. when we're talking about equality, inclusion, gender diversity. They are not just social issues. Mm -hmm. They're not just to do the right thing. There is an economic imperative around it. So they're they're my two answers to the one question. Mm -hmm. Everyone can do one thing. Every month, every day would be nice, but let's let's just be, you know, reasonable, Michelle, every month. And then business leaders really understand the economic power of diversity. Mm. Very too. good. Excellent. Is there a quote that resonates with you and that you live by? Can I, well, I've got lots, but most of them involve swear words, so <laughs> that's, that's going to be a bit tricky. I think the quote for me that has driven me. I, I, a couple of people have asked me, and one stopped me in my tracks about 10 or 12 years ago, I said, what drives me? Because Redfern, what drives you? You're the most driven person I've ever met. And I said, crumbs, I don't really know. But I know I have always had in, the, in my internal narrative is, used to be when I was very young, is this it? There must be more to life. But now it's, there is more, and mine is no regrets. I will live a life of no regrets, and I will never say what if. So I used to say, when I get to 70, I've now said 90 because that's getting a bit closer. But anyway, <laughs> um, when, when, I reach, when I reach the, you know, the, the end of my life, yeah. I never want to say what if. What if I've done that? What if I, I don't want to say what if? So it's not a neat pat saying. My other neat pat saying is I get stuff done. I usually use the other S word, but get stuff done. I have a bias for action. I want people to stop pondering and start doing so. Get stuff done. Get S. HRT done, yes. Very good, excellent, (laughs) excellent. And is there a book that you have read, management book or something that resonates with you that you suggest that people read either to get a better perspective on diversity or it may be just to sort of more self-help, just to get them to understand who they are as a person? Yeah, I, I am an avid reader, so this is the most difficult question you've asked me because I did actually scan my bookcase this morning before I came to go, which one will I pick? So I'm going to give you a couple. I know that recently there's a book called No Ceilings, No Walls by Susan Colantuno, who is a, a great friend of mine uh, and a business partner. Susan runs 
a global organisation around closing the leadership gender gap. And No Ceilings, No Walls talks about the career advice women have probably never got now. It is a book designed for women who want to advance their careers, but it's a great book for men to read to understand perhaps how they may be more effective mentors, coaches and leaders to women. So that would be number one, No Ceilings, No Walls by Susan Colantuno. From a self-help book for women, and I'm very conscious about not fixing women, I really love Tara Moore and it's M-O-H-R, a book called Playing Big. And the one thing that stands out about that book for me is I learned about the difference between good fear and bad fear and how to to, uh, understand and not be paralysed by what might be good fear. And then, yes, I'm overachieving. I'm going to give you a third one. The third one that I really, contemporary book that I absolutely have read, I've read three times now, is by Catherine Fox. It's called Stop Fixing Women. Catherine is a Walkley Award winner, award-winning journalist, and she wrote Stop Fixing Women, released last year in 2018. And it's a really great snapshot of leadership stories, of really progressive leaders and the system uh, that we have in Australia that is preventing women from advancing, greater numbers of women from advancing into leadership. And whilst it's not self-help, it's very, very useful, has been extraordinarily useful for me in terms of my research and the work that I do. But it's, again, I would give that book to, I've given it to a number of clients to say, have a read. You might recognise some patterns here and it might help you with your leadership and the design and the delivery of your organisation so you can tap into that prosperity. Fantastic. Well, it's been fantastic to have you, uh, Michelle, on uh, this uh, Diversity Matters podcast. Thank you so much for coming along and thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Very good. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Thank you for joining us today at The Mentor List. If you'd like to hear more or speak to us about recommending our next interview guest, come on through to mentorlist.com.au. You can also find out more about our suite of mastermind series taking shape in your area, your industry, and your discipline. We look forward to welcoming you to one of our events very soon. Stay tuned for another great show. for listening to The Mentor List. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to just take a few seconds to leave a rating and or comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.